So, Will. Yes? We've often talked about incompetent teachers in movies. Almost all of them are. Somehow. But we've yet to really dig into the administration, I feel. So I wanted to ask, what movie has your favorite incompetent school administrators? So because this is a like college fraternity movie, something that I thought about a lot was not Animal House, which I have never seen, but Monsters University. <laughs> Which, of course, features the legendary fraternity Uzma Kappa, because you're okay. And in that movie, fraternities engage in effectively all-out warfare. Yep. There is, like, physical combat happening between these schools. I mean, when you're a monster, and what else do you do? Helen Mirren plays Dean Hardscrabble, the head of the scare program, who is presented as a, like, Minerva McGonagall, like stern authority figure that you're kind of scared of but really look up to and look it's helen mirren she seems very nice but she is allowing all of this to take place on campus and even kind of endorsing it which to me says dean hardscrabble you're a terrible administrator excuse me it's the scare program of course they have to work out their scaring between each other so that says she's a great administrator see will College is more than just learning in the classroom. You have to learn by actively attempting to murder your classmates. I mean, who hasn't accidentally almost murdered a classmate? Like, I think I haven't. Have you? Let's move on from that question. (laughs) Mark, who's your favorite incompetent administrator? When I think about incompetent administrations of colleges, my first thought is LSE and their handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. Oh, gosh. But in, but in terms of fictional administration, I love Joan Cusack in School of Rock because <laughs> she's portrayed as a villain, but she's really just trying her best, but she's really also not handling it well. And again... I love to bring Joan Cusack up at any opportunity I have. I mean, like, can we, like, say that every teacher is just trying their best? (laughs) Really? No, because sometimes they are um, engaging in sexual relationships with students, like in Easy A. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Lisa Kudrow. She has a very beautiful career. Or just writing their porn at school, like in (laughs) 10 Things I Hate About You. Truly still a wild character and just a, a great cr- movie <laughs> crazy performance crazy character clearly on set for one day <laughs> so what about you who's your favorite fictional administrator um my favorite fictional administrator slash administrators is the school board of hogwarts school of witchcraft and wizardry because you're talking about the board of governors thank you uh apparent thank you very much for uh clarifying just that they're mentioned like twice in the early books and they never come up again and they never do anything you would think they would play a really prominent role when all the umbrage stuff is going like (laughs) like literally lucius is like yeah i've i've kicked dumbledore out because the board of governors said i could and it's like okay so they have a lot of power students are actively being hurt and maimed by a teacher what are y'all doing and nothing (laughs) I'm not even talking about, like, the way Umbridge behaves. I'm talking about, like, she as a source of authority coming from the government versus this board of governors. Like, you would think there would be, like, jurisdictional squabbles. Yeah! Well, again, there's only only ten people and two jobs in this world. So I assume all of the board of trustees are ministry members because there's no other source of employment. Okay. Uh, They could own a shop. I was thinking thinking about 
how in this movie, one of Dapp's criticisms of the board is that they're coasting on their legacy from the civil rights movement in the 60s. And that's kind of like Dumbledore, how he has no training in education. And it kind of shows, but is somehow running a school. (laughs) Well, he maybe does because he was a teacher for a long time. Exactly, And he's the smartest guy around because he makes things go bang sometimes. I guess. Uh, he was a teacher too, but I feel I'm just like saying, his... somebody should have been a bit more. There should have been more uh, personality tests in the wizarding world. They could have been like Georgetown and had a board of two hundred people, and we'll never know. <laughs> it's like, hey, did we? Do you have tendencies towards megalomania? Like, it's a good question to ask on the tests. Have you ever scrolled through the board of Georgetown? The Wikipedia page is long. Yeah. I get too many requests from like saying, hey, uh, cut that name out, I guess. But um, hey, want to be on the board? No. They are not <laughs> asking you to be on the board of directors. They are asking you to like be on your class council I, and board. I'm just, it's either way, I'm like, no. You've got enough of my time. It's it like, is time to move on. Are you paying me? I already don't make enough money from the degree you gave me. Anyway, should we start talking about school days now that we're just complaining about our educational experiences? Uh, Yeah, why don't we do it? I think we'll have a lot of different things to talk about. Some serious stuff, some fascinating stuff. This is going to be a good one. All right. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast committed to examining one of the most important, unimportant questions of our day. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We'll dig into it, see how believable it is. And this week, we are looking at legendary director Spike Lee's sophomore feature, School Days, based on his own experiences at Morehouse College. And we're joined for this discussion by our good friend, Josh. Hello, that's me. It's been almost a year since we had you on the show. Wow, I'm glad I have a mic now, because this is so much easier. Like, Yes. I can be here all the time now. The pandemic has really played weird games with our ability to schedule guests, but it's good to have you back, especially for our first time talking Spike Lee. Exactly. Uh, great director, great man. He put a lot into this movie. Uh, can't wait to dig into it. Okay, before we start talking about the movie, I have a, a question that is kind of vaguely related. <laughs> What argument could a school provide for not divesting in apartheid (laughs) South Africa? Like, what is the other side of the argument? I don't really get it. I guess just money? But seriously. That's kind of what they were saying, yeah. The argument was effectively money or it's more complicated than just simply saying we're doing it. And this is a battle that's depicted in this movie of divesting from South Africa during the final years of apartheid that took place on college campuses all over the united mm-hmm. states in the 1980s and, and i guess that's the thing like even uh today like uh, uh students are still pushing their colleges to kind of divest from corporations and firms that are not treating their workers properly that are not paying living wages uh that may use overseas slave labor like i guess this is just the protest of the day when now college students are like oh now we're protesting about this and so it's always there's always some corporation (laughs) somewhere behind that's like hey we'll give you money if you don't talk well i I think it's much more complicated definitely obviously i mean it's a question too of supply chains in an increasing global Mm -hmm. for the examples you're using it's a question of supply chains in a globalized world and contracts and contracts and contracts and so it is genuinely a difficult thing to do right Mm. 
Whereas what we're seeing here is a movie where Spike Lee is trying to use those very real and present debates over divestment from South Africa to talk about the ways that students are and are not paying attention to what he feels is important in the world at that time. This is a movie about where people's focus ought to be. Right. And I get that. I was just watching this. In my mind, I was kind of just like, I can't imagine justifying this one (laughs) in particular. Like, apartheid was so, just so blatant and apparent, especially by the 80s. Whereas, like, the fossil fuel industry, I feel like the argument at this point shouldn't be as easy as it is, but the politics behind it make more sense to me of, like, debate versus, you know actual apartheid i think it's worth noting that this was an actual debate that had taken place in a lot of areas when this movie is coming out and it's also i think significant to be this issue because of the way it fits in with this movie's larger questions about identity and belonging Mm -hmm. it sets up this question of african americans and the extent to which they do and do not engage with the wider global black community. But it's also Mm -hmm. looking at the micro version of that, which is the students at Mission College and the extent to which they do and do not interact with the black community there in Atlanta. And so we have these different in-group, out-group lines Mm -hmm. being Mm -hmm. drawn most explicitly in terms of the fraternities. We have the dance sequence between the two groups of women. And so I think that apartheid is while important also a useful point for this movie to be making arguments yeah as it's looking at who belongs and who does not that system itself is about that but also about african-americans and blacks around the world it's a great choice for the movie exactly for sure because julian's very much like oh where do we come from what do we what do we represent who who are our people Sorry, not Julian. Vaughn is very much like protesting, like, where do we come from? Who are our people? We come from Africa. While Julian is like, hey, we live in America. We are Americans. And very much like you say, like, where do we come from? Where do we belong? What is our identity? Who are we? So, it, oh, he, he like, again, I've said it, but this movie can be all over the place. But the the kind of theme of, like, identity is, like, throughout it. And, and very much is my identity tied to who... I am related to who I am engaging with, or am I my own person kind of thing? So it's, oh, it's beautifully, it's, it's, yeah, go ahead. I think identity is honestly more of a through line in this movie than plot. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Very much so. (laughs) Yeah, the movie is set over the course of Homecoming Weekend at this fictional black college in Atlanta, and it's kind of just like, here's what happens over the course of this week. Yeah, because it starts on Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday is like the last scene, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think any of us had seen this movie before. No, I hadn't. I'm glad I did. Thank you for suggesting it. Just because I'm bad. You know me, Will. I'm bad at seeing movies. Honestly, I picked it because with the release of Defy Bloods this summer, I've been walking through in a sort of scattershot way Spike Lee's filmography. And this is one that I knew was on Netflix that I hadn't Mm. seen. So this is his second movie. It falls between She's Gotta Have It. And do the right thing. Both, both of which I think are better movies. Both than classics this. too, definitely. Yeah, but I think this one's more complicated. I think it is messy, and it doesn't always know what to do with the ideas that it's bringing mm-hmm. up. I mean, but like, think of yourself back in college. Really, weren't you kind of messy and not even sure what to do with the ideas you were bringing up in your own head sometimes? Yeah, but I didn't make a movie about <laughs> exactly. It <years> so <laughs> it's like. You can understand kind of what it's about. I don't need the but, characters yeah. to necessarily have the fully formed thoughts. I do <laughs> the need movie the movie too. to have them. <laughs> That's the thing. The movie never really like ties up 
any super loose ends, really. Like, there's, like, a couple of, like, oh, uh, I'm good with you, I'm bad with you, but most of it is, like, this was one one weekend, three days, basically, uh, what's next? Right, and I think one of the strengths of Spike Lee as a director and as a writer is his unwillingness to find the easy solution to tie things mm-hmm. up. I think the ending of Do the Right Thing is a great example of that, where Spike and Danny Aiello do not come to a, like, happy-go-lucky understanding after the destruction of the pizza shop. Mm-hmm. But I did come out of this movie feeling like we needed a little more resolution, particularly with what happens with Julian, Jane, and uh, Yeah, I agree. Definitely, I agree. Because I think that is a pretty dramatic way to wrap things up. And I think that Dap, Lawrence Fishburne, who is very much the movie's moral center, Mm -hmm. tells us that we are supposed to view this as reprehensible, but I don't know that we get it to the extent that we probably should, because that final cry of wake up, in particular, isn't really about that so much as it's about all of this. Spike Lee saying, hey, wait a minute, we've got to stop focusing on this stuff that doesn't matter. We've got to wake up to the bigger issues, the global issues. Mm -hmm. And so it feels like Half Pint's quest to end his virginity (laughs) is more an example of the things from which we are supposed to wake up than something that gets interrogated in its own right. And I I agree, because basically Vaughn is basically like, my my feud with Julian, half-pints wanting to be part of the gammas, all of this. Are we thinking too micro? Like, this is, like, wake up. This is, what are we doing? Why are we fighting like this? This means nothing. Basically. So, no, I definitely agree. Where, But like like you said, like it's like, hey, the message was like, wake up from the petty squabbles. But did this movie give us a resolution to those petty squabbles? And it did not. You're right. You're right. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of stuff that I like in it, but it's a movie that I found frustrating yeah. <laughs> just because that I know Spike Lee can do so much yeah. better. And I think the movies that proceed and succeed this do it so and, and like you said like it's the the points of is this a good movie or does it just make good points kind of thing so as a movie maybe not but as a as the content what it says sure good things to think about and great things to always keep on your radar i think it's got a lot of good pieces exactly mm-hmm. i will say watching a bunch of spike lee movies over the summer is a heck of a way to spend a summer because even when he doesn't succeed he's always shooting for something and that's what's exciting mm-hmm. about him yep I agree. He's like, you might not get what I said, but you're going to get something. <laughs> also, again, him putting him, himself in his own movies. I'm just like, come on, Clint Eastwood, please. Well, he does it several times. Of course, he's the lead of Do the Right mm-hmm. Thing. He's very funny and she's got to have it. I'm just going to say, let's say, let's just say it. Tyler Perry, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Clint Eastwood, Spike Lee. Stop putting yourselves in your own movies. Well, Spike did like 25 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> I'm just making sure he remembers. Stop. So... Uh, Like we said, this is his second movie. It was originally supposed to be the second part of a three-picture deal with Island Pictures, who had produced She's Gotta Have It, but they dropped out because they felt like it was too expensive, so he moved the movie to Columbia Pictures. This movie was made for $6.5 million. It's not Not dirt cheap. But it made $14 million, Uh, right? Like, or so. Right, yeah. It more than made back its budget. It's enough of a success that he's able to get Universal to finance do the right thing. He just keeps, like, moving up step by step. That said, like, part of the reason for the expense is because he's, you know, it's all location shooting. They shot it on the campuses of Morehouse, Spelman, Atlanta Clark, and Morris Brown, the four historically black colleges in Atlanta, they wound up having to finish all of it at Morris Brown because the other three were concerned that the movie might wind up with a negative portrayal of black colleges and universities. I remember seeing that too, yeah. And I mean, like, I know I put in my my notes when I was watching the movie uh, just about, like, 
And like, I think the one administrator was saying, hey, yes, we're black, but we have to do what we have to, to get the money we need to. He was saying the yeshivas, all the other colleges that kind of, the the Mormons, all the other colleges that kind of have the, their historical backgrounds, they have their organizations that will provide them funding. What do, what do kind of, like, what do black people have? What do our HBCUs, our historically black colleges have? And it was kind of the, it was a, it was a valid question. Even the past few years, there have been questions about Howard and their funding. Like, can we continue to finance uh, financial aid for students who can't afford college? And it's the question of what do we need to do to make sure we can keep uh, moving, keep, keep, keep doing what we're doing. And it's kind of like, what do you throw away to make sure you keep what you have kind of thing? Yeah. And. And, how, and yeah, so it was. It, oh goodness! Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Mark. Well, well, for Howard now, they got forty million dollars from Jeff Bezos's ex-wife out of the blue. So <laughs> <laughs> that definitely helped. I'm sure that they right, but there. like that's a thing that helps out schools like Howard. But for many of these smaller schools, yeah, those challenges exactly. Are even more significant. Exactly. I know. I just saw that headline and I was like, okay. I haven't even seen. It. It's like, thank you. I think. It's the largest donation they've received in their history, and it came from Jeff, <laughs> Jeff Bezos' ex-wife, <laughs> who is dumping her money a lot faster than he is. Yeah, she's doing good work. Hey, go ahead, girl. Like, okay, we won't question it. Thank is you. Is she the billionaire that earned her money the most ethical way by stealing it from another billionaire? <laughs> <laughs> what was it? John Ralphio, Parks and Rec, I earned my money the old-fashioned way. I got run over by Alexis. <laughs> All right, so let's talk a little bit about maybe the cast of this movie. Or... Ugh, don't even get me started on the cast. All right. Okay, please get me started on the cast because it's a star-studded <laughs> cast. All right, we just need to say it before we get too deep into things. Lawrence Fishburne is hot. In this so movie. hot. Oh, I'm just, I'm getting I had you... no idea he was hot. The earliest I've seen him was in The Matrix. The earliest I'd see him, okay, The Matrix, but the earliest I remember him was Akila and the Bee. He's good where in that. He, exactly. He's great in that, but he's given us daddy there and he's given us like twink realness in this movie so for fishburn he spends most of the 80s on tv like he's a recurring character on peewee's playhouse but Mm -hmm. oh wow i had my in my head young lawrence fishburn apocalypse now 1979 so almost a decade before this so i was kind of thrown that he was still going to be playing a college student in this movie except (laughs) no he's just like 19 in apocalypse now so this is like halfway between that and then the matrix is 11 years after that wow also he's under 40 in the matrix wow literally the Matrix, I'm like, oh, that is Lawrence Fishburne. That is Lawrence Right, he's Fishburne. got the coat and the glasses. Exactly. He's like, oh, you're an authority. This one, I'm like, oh, you are Larry Fishburne I think- here. <laughs> Hello, Larry. I feel like... You're a f- boy who's gonna ghost me and then text me three weeks later like, what's up? And I'm gonna fall for you all I over feel like again. Lawrence Fishburne in The Matrix... He hasn't changed much since. Like, that's just yeah, like, he like, hit yeah. Lawrence Fishburne and he has continued along that path. But in this movie, I was, I was shocked at how much he could get it. Oh, like, say, I like, as it was zooming in on him in that first scene at the protest, I'm like, Lawrence? <laughs> Mr. Oh, Fishburne? No, that's Larry. Oh, God. I was like, oh, no. I think, oh. Oh, yep. Yep. You could have it. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Fishburne. Oh, sorry. Larry. Mr. Fishburne is your father, who you're going to be. 
Ugh. So yeah, so we've got Sorry. Lawrence Fishburne Ugh. as our lead. Just as a spoiler, we all know who I would date in this movie. <laughs> it's not a bad choice. And then, of course, as his rival, we have Julian, played by Giancarlo Esposito, in a breakout role for him Ugh. a year before he plays a central role in Do the Right Thing. Literally, um, again, like, like we can continue, like, Star Studded Names. The thing that really hit me was that... Samuel L. Jackson was not billed as a top billed name. I mean, again, like this is early in his career. And Mm -hmm. like much of this cast, he also appears the next year in Do the Right Thing. And in that one, he is just credited as Sam Jackson. I mean, he is a guy who is doing acting work, but he's often in relatively minor roles. He's pretty well featured as the radio host in Do the Right Thing. And his big breakout is not till 94 with Pulp Fiction. Wow. And like, and that's, it's, again, it's so funny watching these old movies and being like, is that you? It is you. Oh, weird. I mean, this is one of those movies I where- I old, what, the 80s. We talked about this with Love and Basketball, but so often with these movies with predominantly, or in this case, an entirely black cast, you yep. find yourself thinking, or at least I find myself thinking like, wow, this cast is really stacked. But that also kind of makes sense when you think about how few- roles there are, especially in the 1980s, for black actors, especially roles Mm -hmm. like this that are Mm -hmm. not stereotypes. It makes sense Mm -hmm. that a lot of these people who, if they were white, would wind up carrying, like, crappy action movies or whatever, wind up as B, C, and D-level characters in something like this. And, like, I made, I, like, literally, in my notes, I made a list of, like, the character, the people I recognized, and I, like, split them up by, like, top build these days versus... How many of them were in the cast of a different world. Exactly! Slash how many, like, maybe just black black people will notice just because they've been in so many roles. Like, okay, we have Lawrence Fishburne, Giancarlo Esposito, Samuel L. Jackson, Spike Lee know them off the top of your head, but then was it Daryl Bell, Jasmine Guy, Kadeem Hardison, all of them main cast characters in a different world. And like literally seeing, ja- again, seeing Jasmine Guy and Kadeem Hardison and even Daryl Bell so low down on like a Wikipedia page was a shock for me because I was like, I grew up on a different world and they were main characters and they are like main, main like actors in my head. Cut to Tisha Campbell, amazing actress. Like literally like all these people are like huge 90s into the 2000s black actors who if you ask anybody my age, slightly older, even my sister, who's like about 35 now, she'd be like, oh, yeah, I loved him back then. And I can tell you what he's doing right now. Um, This one's going to be fun for y'all. Cassie Davis. There's a scene where when he's at the sorority house and they're yelling at him out the window. Sorry, who are we talking about? Her name is Cassie Davis. Her name is Paula in the movie. She, I saw her and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe you're in this. She has been in, she's probably the second person who's been in the most Medea movies other than Tyler Perry. <laughs> I saw her and I was instantly like, oh. I can't believe you're in this because she has been in so many Medea movies and plays. Cassie Davis, Cassandra Davis, I think she's billed as in this movie. But it's literally, I was just like, oh my God, I can't believe even you are in this. Like literally just seeing faces that you, that I recognize from like uh, uh, just movies that most black people will be like, oh yeah, I remember that one. But then other people are like, I haven't heard of that one. What's that one? I'm like, check out Medea. You'll like it. It's sweet. And we've even got people in minor roles, mm-hmm. Cassie Lemons. Yep. appears as a member of uh, the sororities. We have Ossie Davis in two mm-hmm, scenes mm-hmm, as the football mm-hmm. coach. Oh, I made notes about his like his whole speech as the football coach just because I'm like, 
he's giving a sermon and this is this is not look it's Aussie Davis I mean you got him you you have him do it use him like if he does it good do it I thought I kind of recognized Jane and I realized what I know her from is because she is Crystal in Little Shop of Horrors yep she is Little Shop that was her first appearance this is her second screen appearance and then um uh she was the main character Gina in Malcolm starring Martin Lawrence Uh, sorry Martin not Malcolm Martin (laughs) sorry Martin Lawrence with (laughs) Tisha Campbell as his wife Gina, and then in the 2000s, she was the wife of one of the Wayans brothers. Oh, I can't remember which one. I want to say Marlon as his wife in the like five, six season show My Wife and Kids. Again, yeah, sure. Main character again, just faces that like you're just turn on Saturday TV and you're like, oh, there you are, and to then go back to watch this 88 movie, is it like, and be like, oh, this is where you started. Dang, look at you. You're so young and tiny. So yeah, definitely, it's. Faces that you recognize. Now, you brought up a different world, which I think we should acknowledge. That's the spinoff of The Cosby Show. Yep. About their second oldest daughter going to college. Denise. Yep. Right. So, uh, Lisa like Bonet. you said, there are several people in this movie who are in the main cast of that. A bunch of mm-hmm. other people in this movie appear as guest stars over the course of the run. That show was in the midst of its first season when School Days came out. Wow. Somewhat controversially, because Spike Lee claims to this day that Bill Cosby ripped him off because... <sighs> School Days shot before A Different World mm-hmm, came out, mm-hmm. and they had the same casting director. Yep. Okay. Which makes sense. <laughs> yep. Uh, that also would you? explain why so many of the same people are in both. But Spike Lee claims that Bill Cosby ripped him off. I can, yeah. I mean, and that Hillman College is really Mission College. <laughs> <laughs> I can see. See, I'm not going to... On okay, I can see it, but uh, there are a lot more Hillman College sweatshirts than there are Mission College sweatshirts. So yeah, because a different one, world ran on network for like five years. I know, and it was so good. Ugh. I also do want to mention that the song "Debut" was played in this, which is a <laughs> DC Go Go song. I remember that. That was it, that was I, so good. I was so excited about that, and in part thanks to this movie, it hit number one on the Billboard R and B chart. <laughs> that's i love it i love it. see again you know me I, i'm a slut for a musical number when you're not expecting a musical number so well you must yeah. have been very happy because the first one took me by surprise same i was like i think the first now? one is the Continue. the hair number yeah the good hair versus like, bad hair and they it, walk into the salon and i was just like oh okay this is happening now and then it went longer than you expected it to yeah and, and you're like it, <laughs> that it is also true i was like okay this is still going on i'm along for the ride i i'm strapped in i'm ready let's go in that spirit should we start talking about the romance of this movie <laughs> sure yeah that's what this podcast is about. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I feel like we've had a lot to talk about, and I think we still will, but that'll be a good vector for getting out a lot of these ideas. So every week we break the romance down into five points. So as our guest, Josh, will you lead us through the points of the romance in this movie? Of course, I'd be happy to. So I just wanted to start off that uh, in light of the points that I've given this week, there are two relationships that uh, we're talking about, because I believe that there is a theme, both of this movie and the relationships, of dichotomy, you know, kind of like two ideals living together in kind of the very same idea. It's the same world. So the two relationships we're going to be looking at are uh, Vaughn and Rachel versus uh, Julian and Jane. So point one, the movie opens at the protest where Vaughn is 
like we said, talking about divesting from South Africa. And then Julian comes in with his pledges from Gamma Phi Gamma and kind of just, I guess, train wrecks his way through. Right, he is in part doing his horrible fraternity duty of humiliating these pledges and also using them to disrupt this protest. Exactly, like purposefully doing that. So for this first point, the thing that I was asking myself was like, where are their love interests at the time? So obviously uh, Jane was right there with Julian with her hand on the leash of the pledges, like, uh-huh, I'm here with my man, very much so. While Vaughn was kind of giving his protest, Rachel was, she was like off in the quad, a bit away. She walked up, like, I just got out of class, something like, I'm here, but I'm not kind of in, intruding on your space kind of thing. So at the one thing, it's like, oh, so Jane is with Julian, but Rachel's not going to be with Vaughn. But for me, it was very much, it felt very much like, Vaughn and Rachel were two separate entities who were like, we're coming together with our own interests and our own ideals, and we're going to make a relationship. While Julian and Jane were very, it felt kind of codependent, even in that first scene where it was like, like, again, she was the head of the sorority, he's the head of the fraternity, I think. But I think it's worth engaging with the way that there is a very different power differential. The way that throughout the movie we see that Julian exerts influence over Jane and the opposite isn't true. Mm -hmm. The way Mm -hmm. that the sorority Mm -hmm. seems largely to exist to serve the needs of the fraternity. They hold bake sales to raise money for frat parties. And so I think that Vaughn and Rachel, while not always on the same page, are mm-hmm. coming at it from more a position of equals. Whereas Definitely. Julian and Jane, that's not the case. Not at all. Because whenever he is given the opportunity, with pledges and with Jane, Julian seizes the opportunity to take advantage of his power. Exactly. And it's even clear in the uh, sorority meeting where they're planning like a party with the Gamma Phi Gammas and the Gamma Rays. And the other girls are like, why are we paying for it again? And we're cleaning up. And Jane's like, don't worry about it. So it very, like you said, it's very much not a very equal relationship, even at that beginning point where it's like, okay, Julian and Jane. The, I guess the closest kind of, uh, approximation I can say is, um, Elle and Warner, like, we're the hottest people on campus, heads of our sororities and everything, but it's not necessarily about your personalities and about how you deal with each other as people. It's about position and who has power over who. And again, like you said, it was very much like Vaughn and Rachel. Rachel like, oh, I'm your equal, so I'm fine with you leading your protest over there while I'm coming out of class. Yeah, I feel like the fraternity sorority power dynamic in this movie is interesting because i don't know if i've seen it depicted in this way where it's like the sorority exists only to serve the needs of the fraternity usually they're shown as like independent entities and sometimes hazing in a sorority will be cleaning up frat parties but i haven't seen it where it's like the full sisters are all cleaning up together yeah i said earlier i think this movie is largely about belonging and who belongs where and Mm -hmm. how wide that circle should be. And I think the movie, while it doesn't always succeed, does a lot of work trying to engage with the way that that is complicated by gender. That these questions of who belongs in the black community, and especially as that is manifested through colorism, through Mm -hmm. hair dynamics, Mm -hmm. are given a lot of attention, both in all female spaces and in ways that they interact with men. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. And the sorority plays a big role in that in the way that it is, in some cases, forced to be subservient to the fraternity. And we have this ultimate example with Jane and Julianne at the end of the movie. Oof. And I yep. think that's all interesting. I think that, like, you know, Rachel's comment, for example, that she thinks Vaughn might only be dating with her because she's one of the darkest girls Oof. on campus is really yep. interesting. I just, I think that, like I talked about, I said, I think this movie has some interesting ideas but doesn't quite work for me. Exactly. I think that it engages with these questions of gender in a lot of different ways. But because we don't have any female focal characters, the final word on them is always voiced by a man. Exactly. And there's a, there's a lot of, again, like you said, there's a lot of questions that aren't either they aren't are really addressed or they aren't they don't come to a i guess not even satisfying conclusion you just are like that's not an answer that's cogent that's not even that's even coherent that's not a final answer on the question but then you can take that as a well the question is ongoing so you have to keep asking yourself you have to keep saying like you said am i only dating this woman because she's the darkest woman on campus am i dating her because she gives clout to my ideals and i guess that i mean yeah it's a it's a question that i'm sure rachel struggled with a lot and that vaughn had to be like i have to show her that that i like her for her not just because she's an accessory to my ideals versus julian who's like yeah jane's an accessory and when i'm done y'all can have her basically great questions and always just that struggling like i said that dichotomy of like what are these two relationships looking like what are they struggling with and how does that inform how they interact with each other. I mentioned back in the spring that I've been watching through all of Steven Spielberg in order. And one of the things that I've been finding is that even the movies that I think are largely failures often have aspects that are executed much more effectively in superior movies the way that like Amistad doesn't really work but it has the bones of Lincoln in it. And I feel like this movie, a lot of its ideas that feel unsatisfyingly resolved here are explored much more effectively and do the right thing. But unfortunately, that's a movie where, with the exception of Rosie Perez, who's kind of on the periphery, there's not a lot of space given to women. Here we have them a lot, but I just want to hear from them more. And that's a good point, Well, just mostly because that moves on to the second point, the good hair versus bad hair. Don't you wish you had hair like this? Then the boys give you a kiss. Talk about nothing but bliss. Then you're gonna see what you miss. If a flash should land on your head, then I'm sure he'd break all his legs. Cause you got so much grease up there. Dear, is that a weave that you wear? You got the rivalry between the women as an extension of their relationships with the man, mostly because, like you said, there are those deep-seated roots of colorism versus what does it mean to be black? What does it mean if I keep my hair kinky versus if I, if I straighten my hair? But it very much does feel like Rachel and Jane, they're kind of, oh, I'm looking you down and we're fighting now, is an extension of their relationships with both Vaughn and Julian. Even in their own spaces when the women are facing each other down, it is a question of like, why are we fighting? Because there's no other real moment where Jane and Rachel kind of come head to head other than this moment where it's like, okay, y'all have just left your man and now it's like, oh, this is the other side of the coin where we're fighting the same battle and keeping the same battle lines for them. So do we want to talk about this dance number in the beauty salon? <sighs> I loved it. <laughs> I, just watching this, it's just like, I can't believe this is still such a debate I mean, it reminded me of natural hair discrimination mm-hmm. at offices. And I'm like, how is this still happening? Like, what is wrong with people? And it's like, oh, the hair that grows from my head is bad? <laughs> what? 
And you watch this and it's like, I can understand it is your choice to have your hair how you want it. So it's not like, I don't even think the movie's really saying it's like, Jane is bad for doing the hair the Mm -mm. way she has it. But it's also just like, how are we still discriminating against people for just having the hair that grows out of their head? And I think some of that exhaustion is where the movie ends up. This repeated cry to wake up is like, how are we still Mm -hmm. dealing Mm -hmm. with nonsense? Yeah. And, Why can't we get to the point? You know, 30 years later, we are still still, still dealing with nonsense. It was, like, it was just last year that California was like, yeah, you, you can't be fired for the hair that grows out of your head. It, you can't be told not to, to, to cut your dreads or cut your braids or something. And it was like, it's 2019. What? And it's really interesting because it is a very big question. And they, I think the movie does a good job of expressing that question in a way where it's like, oh, look at us with the good hair, the lighter skinned women who are doing kind of ballet and very elegant and moving. Well, the darker skin, kinky, nappy haired girls are like, hey, we're a bit more crumping with a bit more hip hop slash African influences. So it's interesting how how they show that, again, that dichotomy in just their movements, which is, it's amazing. And I'm like, okay, I see what you're doing. Hip hop itself is called out as being part mm-hmm, of this mm-hmm, debate in the movie. Mm-hmm. When they are discussing what kind of music should be played at the dance. Yep. And it goes back to that thing of, okay, Spike, you're asking a lot of questions here. You're not giving really answers, but then it's the question of, is are there any answers to, are there any right answers? But like, yeah, to go back to the romance, I feel like it really, that rivalry, it kind of feels like an extension of their connection to the men who are kind of very much so in contention with each other. And so... I guess this is kind of an expression of their love for their men. Like, how will I act even when the men aren't here against people who are, I guess, opposed to their ideals? I don't know that that's entirely the case, though, because Mm -hmm. I think this is the area where I think the movie is most effective with the women, showing the ways that their dynamics and their rivalry exists outside of the men in their lives through Mm -hmm. this in-group, out-group membership as defined by color and hair and things like that. Spike Lee, in making this movie, did a thing that I don't know if it's a great idea, but had the two groups, including uh, the men associated with them, stay in different hotels. And the Gammas and the Gamma Rays and their whole crew were also staying in a slightly nicer hotel Mm -hmm. in the hopes that that would increase resentment by the other students. (laughs) And And it it sounds, from what I've read, like that rivalry did get kind of ugly including at the, like, step performance, the Mm. fight that breaks out was not scripted. I find this kind of directing style to be very angering. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I don't love it. You should trust your actors to be able to act. Like, this is literal emotional I mean, I also find method acting to be... It's often just a justification for treating people poorly. You never hear about a guy who's like, that guy's a method actor, so he's just been crazy nice to people all the time. <laughs> right. It, Again, my it favorite really does feel like just, story. You know, an excuse to justify tor- torture. Yeah. Yes. It's like torturing people. It's the idea that you have to suffer for art. And it's like, Ugh, gross. We're just perpetuating cycles of abuse that have existed throughout Hollywood. My favorite is, what is it, Jared Leto in Suicide Squad? You no. Know, where. 
You everybody, could be, you could be on every, set playing a villain and be nice to the people you are like, with. Like it's and, not that hard, and not send them like use condoms in the mail ugh, or whatever. My Jared favorite Leto did. Ugh, my favorite picture is just them at like Comic Con or something, and Jared Leto is saying something, and Viola Davis next to him, her eyes are wide, like wow, I can't believe this is happening right now. How is this my life right now? And I'm like, thank you, Viola Davis, for saying what we were all thinking. Just with her eyes. Consummate actor. Like, ugh. (laughs) Anyway, back to the hair scene. (laughs) I think that's where we're at still. Yeah, they have a big dance number. It's pretty great. It reminds me a lot of West Side Story. Yep. The rivalry segment feels kind of like America in a way that's interesting because the lines are not as neat as the men and women in West Side Story. Mm -hmm. But also the, like, fight dancing is very much like that movie as well and it's very beautifully choreographed and then i also love how in the end they all come together and they're all mixed like mixed up like in their like tableau it's kind of like saying yes we all have hair we're all black women who have hair and we do it differently we might fight about how we do it but we're all black women and so even though like once we come out of the dance sequence there's not really that camaraderie between rachel and jane it is an interesting point that that's being made that like even in just that like really tableau like hey yeah we all have hair we fight about the right way to do it but in the end we're the same kind of thing so it was it was an interesting point to make so early in the movie i think and then kind of not really not really go back to until the end right the idea with the wake up idea that these rivalries are all a waste of our energy exactly so does that take us to point number three i think so actually so point number three is Sex, blue versus red, sensual versus sexual. I know I should love you. You're always feeding me love. Always feeding me love. Now I'm staying home waiting. Ain't nothing on TV. On the TV. I don't want your past possession. I want you here with me. So, okay, it's because uh, Jane comes to Vaughn's room, or Vaughn goes to Jane's room, and they they do it. But in Rachel. Th- Sorry, thank you. I was scared I said Julian and Vaughn. I was like, the gay. Uh. Anyways, Vaughn and Rachel. Actually, I really like this portrayal because it was, it, it was an extended scene of Vaughn and Rachel having sex, but then interspersed with Julian and Jane also having sex, where with Vaughn and Rachel, lights off, very blue, very much missionary position like this is to uh use the colloquial making love we are having a moment here i'm enjoying this wow it was kind of with julian and jane very lit by red very sexual we're moving all over the bed i'm licking your head for some reason i don't know i'm licking all your brands from your fraternity (sighs) but again very much like which no thank you Again, I'm like, you burning your skin? Oh no, I'm glad I didn't rush beef frat. Again. Again, it's very much so that dichotomy between the two of, oh, we're in my dorm bed, very much so together, students just having a moment together, and then to cut with Julian and Jane in like his fraternity bed, like we're all over the place. We're doing it across, like Liz Lemon says. It's freaky. Um, but... It's very interesting to see those differing ways of how to have sex 
even. Just how do you view romance? How do you view a relationship? How do you view us two together? Especially when you see how they end up, both of the couples, where you could say, oh, Julian and Jane seem very much into each other and very much in in tune, especially after Vaughn and Rachel's sex ends with an argument where she walks out, and you're like, oh. Right, because she says that she, she wants, wants she to plans rush. to pledge Delta. She wants exactly. to have that experience. And he tells her that that's stupid, that that's a waste of time, she shouldn't be doing that. And that's when she accuses him of being prejudiced against light-skinned people. Exactly. And says that she thinks maybe the only reason he's with her is because she's one of the darkest girls on exactly. campus. Exactly. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see, hey, especially again, in light of how they end up, Oh, and seemingly innocuous sexual experience ended up, oh, I basically want to break up with you versus uh, Julian and Jane. We're going as strong as ever. But it's worth noting that the more we see of Julian and Jane, the more we understand that Julian does not view her as an equal or really as a person. Exactly. So at this point in the movie, literally at this point in the movie, I was like, okay. Yeah, I think the treatment of Jane by Julian is probably like the most upsetting part of this movie. Absolutely. But it is still interesting to like contrast it to Vaughn and Rachel, where basically Mm -hmm. there are no, and we'll probably get into this, but there are no good or happy relationships. Honestly, even friendships. There's like no relationship between two people that is just like good which i find interesting yeah the closest thing to that that we see is the relationship between vaughn and half pint who are cousins and they don't agree but vaughn does try to look out for him and help him along you know vaughn goes up to julian and says like hey i know we don't agree but like don't stop my cousin from being able to pledge but then at the end of the movie after half pint is guilty of this horrible act with jane he must be drunk right tears into him yeah, as got, he should yeah yeah like half point has got to be drunk because i was just a scene where he was like i don't give a shit what you said gamma five gamma and it's like dude are you even listening to yourself yeah that that whole thing very yeah. upsetting way to end the movie it was because like yeah right, and again, i think it's supposed to be upsetting because right, it's supposed it to mm-hmm. jar us into waking up but i don't know that the, like I don't know that we need to use what is sexual assault to jar an audience. Exactly. And I hate to use the phrase, it was the 80s. Like, no, it was always bad. But like you said, is this the way we should jar ourselves into awareness? Actually, to be honest, that moves us into point four. So we've got all that. We've got these, these two relationships, like we said. Rachel and Vaughn are... In some conflict, but we know that they maintain a relationship. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we've got Jan and Julian, and that's where we wind up. We've been talking around it, but with point number four, right? Yeah. Point number four is basically, what will you do for me? Wait, wait, wait wait a minute. You gave it up to half point. Yeah. You gave it up? You... How could you do this, Jane? You told me. How could you do this? You phoned my own frat brother? No, I didn't tell you that. The hell I told you that. Jane, I thought you loved me. I do love you. No, you don't love me. No, no, no. You love what I stand for. You love Gamma Phi Gamma. Julian asked Jane, do you really love me? If you love me, you'll do this. And it's very, very emotionally manipulative. Oh, my goodness. I hated that scene. It's worth setting it up, too, that ahead of time, Julian has told the other members oh. of of the frat like oh jane and i aren't that serious i'm gonna break it up with her and with like her. first come first serve like anybody oh who goodness. wants to get with her will be able to again that attitude of seeing her as an object mm-hmm. and then here like you said he's like oh do you really love me and he follows that up with like do you love gamma phi gamma yeah so he's saying if you care about this stuff you will do this. You have will. sex with half pint 
because Julian says you can't be in the frat if you're a virgin. And we see her face, and we don't see the actual conversation where he spells that out to her, but we see the horror on her face as she is led into Mm -hmm. the bone room. Mm -hmm. And that tells us really all we need to know about her attitude in going through with this, that she feels like it is her responsibility to do this thing against her will. Mm Mm-hmm. And it means nothing to Julian, who actually uses it then as a pretext to break up with her. And, oh, goodness, that ent- both him telling her, like, do you really love me? And then her going into the room and then even half pint being like, you don't have to do this. But she's like, just get it over with. It's like, oh, my goodness, this is painful to watch. It re- Yeah, it really was that scene for me. And it was just like, wow. There is that very real uh, uh, kind of societal woman, submit to your man. If he asks you to do something, do it and be there. And it was, and there's, of course, the an entire subculture of black culture that's very much like, I say subculture, but it is very, um, very mainstream, I would say. Like, women submit to your man. Women obey your husband. If your husband says do this, do that. And I, I mean, like, again, I do say like black culture, but I feel like it is pervasive throughout all culture where it's like, do what needs to be done to keep him happy. And she was like, okay, if this is what it takes, I'll do it. And then it was like, how dare you? Ah, you failed the test. This was your test, not his. Oof. It was, oof. It, again, it was hard to watch. Which is just a garbage, manipulative mm-hmm. An abusive way to treat a person. Especially when he was already like, I'm going to break up with her anyways. So, garbage. Garbage. But, so, the, um, I guess the positive, like, dichotomy of what will you do for me is Vaughn going to Rachel's dorm, standing out there, kind of like shout. Again, it's the, the classic, like, boombox over the head. I'm coming to make my final declaration. Like, yo, hey. And then, of course... All the girls fully just, why are you here? You're nothing. Get out of here. And all of them just (laughs) fully dragging him through the mud. And the question is, what will he do for Rachel? He'll stand there and take it while they throw water on him, while they yell at him, while they call him names. And he kind of says it, which I'm like, if I didn't really want this, why would I be here taking this? And I was like, okay, okay, Larry Fishburne. So what will you what will you do for me? He's like, I will stand here and take the abuse that I rightly deserve because I try to push my ideals on you. Because I said, please don't. He didn't say please. He said, don't pledge. And she was like, so you're going to fight me on this? And we know that they are together that night because when Half Pint shows up, she is asleep in the room. Um, also, we know they're together that night because she undresses Larry Fishburne, and we're like, okay, Lawrence, we didn't know you looked like this. Okay. I'm just saying, for all us gays out there, we were like, Lawrence, I know I met you in Aquila and the Bee, but hey. <laughs> and I think that brings us to our fifth and final point. Wake up! Half Pint shows up at Fawn's dorm saying like, hey, I'm not a virgin anymore. We know Rachel is asleep in there. And that's when then Vaughn chews Half Pint out for having engaged in this, this horrible behavior where he had sex with Jane against her will. I mean, it, it's clear that she did not consent fully to what goes down. And that's what inspires Vaughn to just 
leave and to his like, wake up, wake up from all of this final repeated cry. And like again, the end result, it's like I put in my notes who's together and who is heartbroken, but it very much is like, hey, yes, Rachel and Vaughn were able to come together over their differences and be like, hey, he said like, hey, I don't mind if you if you pledge that's your business. I have my own issues about the Greeks, but I can't stop you from being who you are. And I like you for who you are. Versus, like you said, Julian and Jane. Jane coming off of this horrible assault where, where, where she, she said she clearly did not consent. Even if she said, just get it over with. It was like, I'm doing this for, oh goodness, it's so, I'm doing this for him. And then Julian is like, you did it? I can't believe you did it. And she's like, you told me to. I thought I was doing what it would take for us to be together. Oof, goodness. Just a very very heartbreaking situation it's it's hard to say like to to make the fifth point end results when you're just like oof this poor poor girl like she did not deserve that she deserved a very a very just normal college experience with a normal boyfriend who did not push her into these things so oof all right so i think that's about it for this movie any last points so that's the movie no yeah, that's wake up, the movie. Uh, again, good movie. Wake up, watch it if you. I mean, I... and dig more into Spike Lee. Do the right thing is free on Peacock right now. <laughs> you and Peacock. I'm not enamored with Peacock, but I am enamored with Do the Right Thing. <laughs> <laughs> the sad thing is how quickly I'm getting used to the name Peacock. <laughs> Same. <laughs> hey, I was watching Columbo the other day, so I'm not mad at Peacock. <laughs> All right, I'm just saying, but. Before Peacock came out, the last time I saw Peacock was in the seventh Harry Potter book where Lucius Malfoy had what? Albino peacocks. Oh, sounds like you've never been to a bar in Florida. The one that we used to go to after school just had peacocks hanging out. I genuinely have never been to a bar in Florida. (laughs) That is a fact of my life. (laughs) All right, but back to school days. Do you guys find these romances believable? TBH, yes. Like, College students being stupid and paying more attention to their hormones than their actual feelings, yes. Yeah, I don't know that I'm, like, a full 10 out of 10. Yeah. But, like, unfortunately, like, we see on the Vaughn side of thing, like, miscommunication and, Mm -hmm. I think, believable college behavior. And on the Julian side, we see horribly abusive and manipulative behavior, which is also not unbelievable, unfortunately. Exactly. Not outside the realm of, especially college relationships, so like, we always rate the believability of a romance on a 10-point scale, where 0 means we don't believe any of it, and 10 means we believe all of it. Mark, I'm curious where you're feeling right now. Um, I uh, definitely on the higher side. Mm-hmm. I'm probably leading towards, like an, honestly, like a 8 or a 9. Oof, nice. Yeah, that feels right to me. So I was going for a 7, just because I've never had a college relationship, so I wasn't sure how believable, but, like, I just felt, it felt believable. Do you guys think- Yeah, I think I'm gonna land probably at an 8 yeah, on this one. Yeah, leading towards I an 8. So, so, like, yeah, like, average out, that's about an 8, I think. Do you guys find the romantic leads dateable in this movie? Well, I think we could all say Julian is not. As a yes. no. sexual predator. Yeah, definitely no for Julian. Probably Vaughn. I think he's the kind of person who might be like a little bit annoying to know. <laughs> but he's certainly dateable. He comes around to be a good boyfriend at the end. 
I just even when his friends were like, "Dude, you're being a bit much," they left the room and instantly came back, knocked on the door, and were like, "Now come on, let's go get some food, idiot." <laughs> so nice guy. Yeah, and so I like, think yes, lo- I think love. Rachel definitely, exactly. definitely Rachel's great. Even even um Jane, it's like girl, pull yourself together and make some better choices, and you would like, girl, honey. You just you deserve better. Jane deserves better. That's Jane is everyone deserves better. Yes, everyone I, does. I don't know that I want to date the Jane who we see for most of this movie. No, mm-hmm. she is like Jane true, is pretty true. openly colorist too, which is oh yes, definitely uncomfortable to watch. And like we, ugh, ugh, we didn't even go into oh the Jigaboo. I'm I'm gonna be the one to say it just because Thank I feel you. like I'm the only one on this call on this who can say it. <laughs> I was I not going to. Thank you both for not. That's all. Like, that's why I know you're good people. Because y'all were like, we have enough sense not to. Well, thank you for setting that extraordinarily <laughs> low bar of I know. saying <laughs> it's like, old-timey it's, racial slurs. It's on the floor and people still trip somehow. Oh my goodness. <laughs> anyway, thank y'all both. All right. Do we think that Rachel and Vaughn will stay together? I mean, it is a college relationship, so... So maybe. So it's it's a solid maybe. I've seen several college relationships that have ended in marriage. It's their senior year, so they know who they are. And they're like, okay, we're still want to be together, even though we've been together since freshman year. So, yes? Question mark? We've only seen them for a weekend. We have, that's true. And it's a pretty rough weekend that. Vaughn is more confident in who he is Mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. an activist. Whereas Rachel seems like she is still searching for herself to a greater that's degree. That's true. That's true. And and we, she's like you said, she's she's rushing senior year, and it's like okay, you you want this experience, and you've kind of been overshadowed by Dap since your freshman year and his ideals. So who knows? Maybe down the line she'll be like, this isn't what I want. All right. If you did have to choose someone in this movie to date, who would you pick? Ugh, Larry Fishburne, only for the scene where she undresses him when he's wet. And you get that silhouette of him, and you're just like, oh my god, Lawrence? Is that you? <sighs> I'm gonna say Coach Odom, uh, in part because Ossie Davis is always so great. True. I mean, the man is a living, he's dead now, but was an absolute living legend. He was the MC of the March on Washington. He gave Malcolm X's eulogy. And on top of that, he's a really, really good actor. And I think he does great work in this movie. That was, a, literally, he had that amazing speech. Actually, I did write down a point from his speech that I wish I'd brought up. But um, he said, God told Jonah that love and labor are inseparable. So even as we wrap up now, like, which couple was willing to put in the work to be like hey i will change i will work with you towards your dreams and which one was like i don't love you enough to put in the work so i i did write that one down because i was like that has to be a a quote about love that we can use somewhere in this podcast love and labor are inseparable hey aussie aussie odom i might have said that wrong probably well ossie davis is the actor and coach <laughs> odom is the character there we go so you've you. merged them i was close uh mark who would you date i'm leaning towards the woman who leans out the window to heckle Lawrence fishburn that is she, cassie davis because she is hilarious and also i respect anyone who's willing to shush someone when it's late at night <laughs> 
I'm that saying, is very Mark energy. That was that's true. That uh, Cassie Davis, uh, who played Paula, that's apparently what School Days said her name was, even though it was never said. She's the one that has been in more Medea movies than perhaps Medea sometimes. All right, last question. Many of the films we have watched have been adapted into stage musicals. Should School Days, which is already kind of a musical, be adapted for Broadway? I think this could work on stage. And I think it has the musical numbers. It has similar connective (laughs) tissue to a lot of musicals on stage which is very little yeah that statement is an accurate indictment of many musicals (laughs) yeah i think it could be good and i think a lot of these issues are not talked about on broadway at all so it could be good Mm -hmm. to bring that conversation to a uh honestly pretty terrible place (laughs) so my first thought when all the girls were leaning out of the window to yell at vaughn slash larry was the opening number of Legally Blonde, where they're all leaning. Oh my god! Oh my god! You guys, I was so like, the energy I got was sit down, you're rocking the boat. <laughs> that would be a great <laughs> musical scene of just like windows and different actors leaning out of them to yell at uh, Vaughn, <laughs> who is still played by Lawrence Fishburne even at this I'd watch age. It. I would. <laughs> yeah, I agree that this could work as an interesting musical. Thinking mm-hmm. about it made me really want to see modern day Spike Lee, the Spike Lee of Five Bloods, making a musical because the way he makes movies so aggressively these days mm-hmm. and the way that he uses multimedia elements, this one starts off with a montage of images of slavery and mm-hmm. reconstruction and black leaders mm-hmm. and movies like Bamboozled and Five Bloods incorporate lots of footage from other media and things like that. And I would love to see him do that with a musical, probably an original one, but as I was talking this out over, I started imagining, like, Spike Lee's Hamilton. <laughs> Which, like, would just be so much more it would, aggressive and the way that he would, would use, uh, like, old film or historical mm-hmm. imagery or things like that. I think these kinds of things are a powerful idea. And I'm not saying I need him to adapt Hamilton, but no. I want to see a modern-day Spike Lee musical. That's interesting. I Yeah, like, a Hamilton-esque Spike Lee musical would be amazing, actually. <laughs> All right, so I think that's about it for school days. I am glad that we did it, and I'm looking Same. forward to watching more Spike Lee as the fall rolls on. Me too. I thank y'all for like let, like forcing me to watch this movie. It was good. It was great. It was fun. Well, Josh, I just always think about when you and I saw Dear White People in theaters. <laughs> so do I, because my favorite moment was when we were leaving the theater and there was a group of black people next to us, walking next to us, and they laughed, and one of the girls put her hand on my shoulder, like I was one of them, and I looked at her, she's like, oh, I don't know you, I just thought you were a black person with us, and I thought that little white boy was lost. (laughs) But it was just, it was just, I was like, it's fine, y'all keep going. Classic horrifying moment when you realize that you are talking to someone that is not in your group. Exactly. Well, look, to be fair, it was a movie theater in Georgetown. The odds were that Josh was in their group. Like, let's be real. Like, they see black people. They're like, it's with us, right? And I was like, sorry, this white. Don't worry. This white boy's with me. It's fine. He's okay. That movie theater is a (laughs) weird place. It's a liminal space, okay? One day I hope to return to it. Me too. Having been there to see a movie at 10.45 a.m. too, I have seen, like, (laughs) all of of that, what that movie theater has to offer. (laughs) I saw Colossal at... (laughs) 
1 p.m. on a weekday there. And it was me and one other person. And I had, like, walked clean across D.C. And I was like, do you mind if I take off my shoes? And she was like, yeah, if you don't mind me texting through the whole movie. And I was like, deal. I think that's also where I saw Green Book and scrolled Twitter the whole time because there was no one else in the theater and I was bored. On the other end of the spectrum, that's where I saw Black Panther. So... Good movie. (laughs) Great movie. (laughs) All right. Next week, we will be discussing a very different movie from this one. 1933's Gold Diggers of 1933. This is like the most Mark movie we've ever watched. Josh, you really should watch it. It's on HBO Max. It's a pre-code musical. Wait, are there gays in it? There are no gays in it, but there are the promised gold diggers in the year 1933. Fine, I'll make it work. Actually, the title really tells you all you need. <laughs> this makes me think of Robin Thede in uh, a Black Lady sketch show where she was like, we are the first black gold diggers of the Negro League baseball teams. <laughs> that TV show is perfect. It's amazing. Well, until next week, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts probably help us the most. Last question, Josh. What's the best piece of dating advice you got from school days? I mean, obviously, dress in a suit outside of your Amours apartment building and let their neighbors slash friends drag you for filth until they come outside and say, come on in, let me make you naked. I mean, I think Josh really, (laughs) you missed the best piece of dating advice, which you said earlier, which is love requires labor. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. I mean, if we're being real, sure. Mom. (laughs) My dating advice, uh, we did not discuss Bill Nunn, who I kept thinking of as Radio Rahim, which is his character in Do the Right Thing, but he plays Grady, who's on the football team, and at the Splash Jam dance, he goes up to a woman and says, you know what I thought of when I saw you? Collard greens and cornbread. So I think if you're interested in someone, you should tell them what food they remind you of as a way of flirting. He did say that, and I was like, I think I just fell. Oh, my God. Josh, have you watched Flavor of Love season one recently? Because that is- Have I ever? Because I've- I've made a promise to myself to love myself. (laughs) You haven't watched it, Josh? No. All right, we will be discussing this off air. But until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. And I'm black. (laughs) So between the three of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye.